Welcome to another episode of The Me Show. I'm your host, me. Not really. Not really. We will have a guest. Uh, Clifford is my guest. Clifford, whose last name I don't remember, but I'm sure we say it in the uh, in the conversation. He uh, was briefly my drumming teacher. I took drumming lessons because I found a group on, and I've always wanted to dabble in the African drumming uh, scene. And so I uh, took a few classes, and, and Clifford's a really nice guy, and I wanted to talk to somebody about the mysteries of drumming. And uh, I knew that he'd been to Africa and been studying uh, percussion for a long time. So I invited him on the podcast and we talk about drumming. It's cool. I'm interested in that stuff. I suck at it, um, but I think it's very important to do things that one sucks at. And sucking, sucking itself, the word sucking as meaning bad at something is kind of a weird thing. You know, given the fact that blowjobs are so popular, why would sucking be a negative? Um, But anyway, it's important to be to do things that you're not good at. It's important to get out there uh, at the ledge of humiliation and failure and make sure uh, you never lose your familiarity with the feeling. Otherwise, you start to get failure vertigo at the first sign of any sort of uh, in, inabilities or, or questionable accomplishments, which means you end up living your life far from the, the edge where the interesting things are happening. And I think that's a, a danger that becomes more pronounced as we get older. Um, I've been thinking about that recently. I just had a very interesting 10 days or two weeks or whatever it's been. Cassie and I went down to Austin to the Paleo FX conference where I gave a talk on paleo politics. Um, And then uh, we came back to, to Portland and then I left two days later to go to San Francisco where I attended the, uh, the world premiere of this sort of porn film that we're in uh, called Marriage 2.0. Uh, I encourage you to Google it and check out the webpage if, you, if you're interested in it. It's, it's like an indie film that also has explicit sex in it. So I don't feel comfortable calling it a porn film, really. Um, it, it's just, it's kind of like life, you know, it's it's uh it's got character development it's beautifully shot it's uh very well acted and there's sex sometimes sometimes there isn't um like life itself so I was down there doing that and then um and then I went down to LA and recorded a couple of podcasts uh with some very interesting folks down there and uh then I came back last night which was Saturday night today's Sunday and then this morning I went and appeared in a comedy festival a live podcast recording uh by uh people who call themselves probably science it's uh, several comedians who have a scientist on and sort of um get funny about science so that was interesting and spent the morning with baron vaughn who's a, a comedian very funny guy who's in um, a, a new tv show on netflix called grace and frankie starring lily tomlin and um, jane fonda that just came out a couple days ago so that's happening now Um, Anyway, so it's been a very interesting week. Obviously, I haven't gotten a lot of writing done for those of you who are keeping track of these things. But, um, you know, I was thinking how 
how my life these days is the life of a generalist, you know, and it's my life and has always been my life, not just these days, but it's become more pronounced since Sex of Dawn came out. You know, I, I did, um, I've done a bunch of comedy shows, as, as many of you will know. And um, I asked uh, Moshe Kasher once, you know, why he kept inviting me back to his show called uh, Hound Tall, I think, or something like that. Um, and he said, well, Chris, you know, you're funny, but not too funny. And I guess by that he meant I wasn't trying to be funny. I wasn't clashing with the professionals on stage. I was, you know, doing my thing and giving them material and then get out of the way when, they, when they're when they doing their stuff. Um, and it occurs to me that, you know, that's my blessing and my curse that I'm a generalist. I'm I'm a writer, but lots of people have written much more than me and do it much more seriously than I do. I'm a teacher, but I don't teach at any big fancy university or anything. Um, you know, I do comedy shows, but I'm not really a comedian. I I go to paleo conferences, but I'm not like a hardcore paleo guy. You know, I'm eating shit that paleo people don't eat, and I'm nowhere near as in shape as they are, and I'm not monitoring my blood lipid levels and you know all that kind of stuff I'm not I'm not hardcore about any of this stuff really I mean even you know Sex of Dawn when it came out suddenly we were we found ourselves in the center of communities of people who were exploring alternative relationship structures and um, who had been, you know, researching these things, biologists, evolutionary theorists, people who really have dedicated their lives to this, to these various pursuits. They're specialists. And suddenly there we are in these various communities. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I've often felt, um, uh, I felt welcome, but I felt, uh, what's the word? I felt um, like I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be there. And, um, you know, one book, okay, it's popular, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily, um, you know, popularity and quality are not always the same. And uh, and I felt un- it was undeserved, I guess, is, is the word I'm looking for. And um you know, I think we we touched a nerve with Sex at Dawn, but it's based on other people's work. We didn't go out into the field and interview hunter-gatherers or, you know, follow bonobos around in the jungle for 10 years. Someone else did that, and then we took their findings and, you know, reconfigured them into a, a narrative that seems to make sense to people. Um, but that's not the same thing as doing the original research, and what we did wouldn't even be possible without those people who did the original research. So, um anyway the my point is that uh there there's sort of an innate i don't know if it's sadness or disappointment or but there's a there's there's something like where you're never there are always people in the world that you're entering into who are far more accomplished or knowledgeable about these things personally uh I find it much more interesting to be a generalist. Um, you know, just because it allows you to think about whatever you want to think about and pursue your passions. And I wouldn't be very good as a specialist, which I guess is why I'm not one. And, and there's some, there's a sort of parallel thought that I've, I've been thinking about, which is there's an, there's an innate, 
inescapable sadness uh, in aging that I never really thought about when I was when I was young. And it's um, it's related to to the fact that no matter how interesting your life is, no matter how wonderful things turn out, uh, there's uh, uh, actual can never compare with potential. Right? It, it's it it just can't because it's just like waking life can never be as amazing and unrestrained and colorful and surprising as dream life because actuality is limited actuality is what it is and the potential that you're living in when you're young in your 20s and you're thinking of all the things your life could be well yeah maybe if you're incredibly lucky it will be one of those things that you're thinking of but only one, you know, you're not going to be an astronaut and a deep sea diver and, you know, a fucking acrobat. You're going to be one of those things and you might have hobbies and whatever, but you got to pick. And there's something, you know, when you grow up in these cultures that say you can be anything you want, you could be president, you could be this, you could be that. Well, part of maturation is realizing, yeah, you even if you're incredibly lucky and, and, and very smart and have all the connections and got, have everything you need, maybe you can be one of those things, but just one. And so even if you end up being president or you end up being a billionaire or you end up marrying the most gorgeous woman you've ever seen or whatever it is that you aspire to, the reality is that your experience is going to be reduced from your aspirations. People who are listening who are in their 40s or over know exactly what I'm talking about, I suspect. And people younger than that might suspect or might, uh, you know, have, a, have an inkling. Um, but it's unavoidable. It, it's, it's the nature of, of aging, I think. And, um, you know, I can't, uh, I, I can't get to all the emails that I get, but I thought maybe I'd like pick one a week or, you know, whenever the spirit moves me and respond to that. And this is kind of related to that. This is uh, from someone who says, um, I can't find an instance where you elaborate on your decision to not have children. Uh, if this is something you've discussed, blah, blah, could you explain? I myself am debating the issue. And while I believe I want to have children eventually, I'd like to hear someone who decisively concluded early in life on this issue. So this relates to what we were talking about. My decision not to have children uh, did come very early and you know, I thought maybe I'd change my mind, um, but I never have. And, and at this point, it would be silly to have children. Um, for me, it was a very clear decision between uh, having children and feeling uh, that my, my options were much more limited uh, versus not having children and keeping those options open. Now, maybe some people could look at that and say, oh, that's just the guy who didn't want to grow up. And I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's a legitimate way of looking at it. If growing up means this narrowing of options and narrowing of experience, which, you know, as I've been saying, it, it inevitably does in some way. 
just because at some point you need to move forward. So you need to choose which path you're going to go forward on. Uh, otherwise, you're stuck and you're in, in this state of waiting for your real life to begin. There's an amazing song by Colin Hay called Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. I, I encourage you to check it out. It's uh, heartbreaking. Maybe I'll play a little a little bit of it here at the end of uh, the end of the rant. Uh, he said, I saw him in a concert recently and he said people write to him and say that they use that song in their weddings and he doesn't understand why. When you listen to the song, you'll understand why he's confused by that. Anyway, that, that was it for me. Like I wanted to be able to travel. I wanted to be able to change jobs. I wanted to be able to, you know, I, I didn't think I'd ever have fuck you money, but I still wanted to be able to say fuck you. I wanted to be able to walk away from any situation that I felt was abusive or soul killing. And when you have kids, you can't do that anymore. When you have kids, you've got responsibilities. You've got to pay the bills. You've got to buy them those sneakers that all their friends have, even though they're incredibly overpriced and ridiculous. You've got to get them into that private school and get them the books and get them this and get them that. And if you don't, you know, they suffer in some ways. Now, I know some people homeschool and they they manage to keep their independence and their their sort of rebelliousness and their freedom while having children. And that's incredibly uh, admirable. And uh, I salute those people. I don't think I could do that. I don't have the, uh, I I don't have whatever it is that that takes. So for me, the choice was have kids and buy into this society in a way that I really didn't want to, or don't have kids and maintain some freedom and, uh, ability to walk away. And so for me, that was an easy choice. I won't say I don't sometimes wonder at what I've missed. I won't say that I don't um, definitely know that there are amazing experiences that I'll never have because I'll never have my little girl fall asleep on my chest when she's, you know, a little two-year-old girl who trusts me so much that she just, you know, treats my body like a sofa. I'll never have that experience. I'll never have the experience of, of, you know, showing someone the world in that way. And uh, that's a very, very beautiful thing. But there's a very high price to pay for that. Now, if I had been independently wealthy, if my family had enough money that I didn't need to ever worry about it, uh, I don't know. Maybe it would have been different, but that's not the way it was, so... Anyway, I don't want to rant too much. Uh, I want to get this out quickly um, because I'm running behind because of all this travel. Uh, It's check out uh, Probably Science. They'll be posting the podcast that we recorded this morning, which was a lot of fun. Check out Baron Vaughn. Uh, You can Google him. He's got a podcast himself and he's in the show Grace and Frankie, as I said. Um, and let's see what else. Carsey Blanton, you know her. She sings Smoke Alarm at the end of the, the podcast, which is amazing. Basinandrangeband.com. They, they gave me the intro music, which is funky and cool. Uh, you can check them out. And uh, let's see. T- uh, the um, T-shirts, as you know, we've got T-shirts at ChrisRyanPhD.com. Shore Design is the company that makes them. Go to shoredesigntshirts.com and you can see their entire line of shirts. If you already have a tangentially speaking shirt or a Sex of Dawn shirt or Paleo Modern or 
civilized to death um, and you like the the feel of the shirts, which everyone does, you can go to shortdesigntshirts.com. Use sex at dawn at checkout and you get 10% off your entire order. I don't consider that an ad, by the way, because Short Design T-Shirts has been, you know, with me since the very beginning. And I love those guys, Bennett in Chiang Mai. Um, so I don't consider that an ad. I consider that a shout out to a friend. So I hope you'll forgive it. And uh, speaking of ads, if you want to contribute, if you want to support the podcast, please go to fundwhatyoulove.com. There's a place there where you can make a recurring uh, donation of a buck a month or five bucks a month or whatever you can afford or whatever you think it's worth. That's most welcome. I've been really um, gratified by the number of people who've gone there and and uh, you know who are helping to keep the podcast uh, in the black, as they say. Um, if you don't want to do a recurring thing, there's a donate button on my page for a one-time PayPal you know thing. If you want to just drop ten bucks in the bucket or whatever whatever you feel. There's that on chrisryanphd.com. And of course, you can always click through the Amazon button as well on chrisryanphd.com, and that will send us a, a chunk of whatever you spend at Amazon. That's it. Enough from me. Enjoy this podcast. I'm going to play Waiting for My Real Life to Begin Now by Colin Hay, who lives in Topanga, California, where I was a couple days ago. And I actually met someone who knows him. So I wrote up a note to him and gave this friend of his a copy of Sex at Dawn. So right now, I think Colin Hay has a copy of our book. Doesn't mean he's going to read it, but he might. And if he does, and he listens to this podcast, I hope he doesn't sue me for using this song. Happen, but 
But in my dreams I slew the dragon And down this beaten path Up this cobbled lane
Nice. Thank you. All right. Come on over here and we'll chat. Let's see. All right. Great. So why don't you tell us something about what you just played? What, where'd that come from and what were you playing on and all that? Okay. So first I was playing on the djembe, which is um, a sort of goblet shaped drum, about two and a half feet tall with a, this one has a goat skin head on it, which is pretty, pretty common. And it's a type of wood called linke, which is a hardwood. Um, this drum's from Guinea. Um, and so I was improvising, but I was taking phrases that I've learned from, from various teachers that I've had, um, mostly, mostly techniques from teachers I've had from Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then on the dunoons, the bass drums, where I was playing with the sticks, I was just fully improvising and um, just kind of messing around. What, what comes out of you when you're improvising? What, what's that reflect? Um, well, it's, hopefully something comes out that that I like, but uh, it's, uh, when improvising, I think it's just all experiences, like every musical, or maybe not just musical experience, um, just trying to express myself and trying to please myself as far as what I hear uh, with, um, so, so really just ideas, I, I'd say, and trying to, trying to, to keep it cohesive and not, not um, make it just like where I'm doing one thing and then all of a sudden I'm somewhere totally different. Right. And then, um, so it's trying to tie things together, which, which sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Right. Or Would at you, least trying to bring it back if it doesn't happen. Do you happen. ever like find when you're playing that, like let's say you've had a really bad morning or you mm-hmm. know, you're like, oh, shit, I owe $20,000 in back taxes. And then you've, you're playing and you're like, wow, what am I playing? There's all this irritation in the music. Or mm-hmm. do you ever like see yourself reflected in what you're playing in a surprising way? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I haven't necessarily noticed. I, I remember many years ago playing a gig with, uh, with a band that I was in, and there was a lot of friction. And, and I remember being really, really pissed off at the front man. And, and just, it was like it was at a park. Or something <laughs> like that. And I was just playing the drums harder than I normally do. And just like, I don't know. I remember next thing I, I, I looked up, and all these kids were like, like staring at me. <laughs> like you were having a breakdown. Yeah, well, I mean, and it was just, you know, it was like I don't usually play with anger. Usually right. it's, it's, but yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, I'm sure it does in some way. So you think Keith Moon really hated Roger Daltrey and that's why he played so hard? It's possible. <laughs> yeah. It could be. It's, yeah. So, so yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Sh- it probably does reflect, I, I do believe it reflects like who I am in some ways right right but not necessarily who you are as of an hour ago as like a totality of, of who you are well yeah in, in some ways it does because i mean every day is different and right. you and you feel different every day right and and so depending on how you feel that affects how you play i, I right. think i mean i guess the goal as a professional musician is to is to even if you don't feel good or, or you're not feeling a certain way that you can still get to that space where you feel right. good and, and, and if you feel that way other people would a professional feel anything yeah right? I think that's that's what defines a professional is that you still are good when you don't feel like doing it at all yeah whether you're a hooker or a writer or a musician or whatever you like show up and you're good uh huh so you can yeah. deliver I guess do, do drummers have a voice yes definitely right yeah because I, I I mean I could tell like Keith Moon probably from you know, Neil Parrott, for mm-hmm. example, right? I, but it's not like, you know, Santana could play three notes and I know it's Santana, uh-huh. you know, or, or a certain sax. You or know, singers or... Yeah, or you know, Miles or something. Like, you know it right away. 
with a drummer, I couldn't do it. But is that's just because I don't know drumming music as well, right? Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard harder for non drummers probably to recognize. Uh. Um, but but there's you know depending on what instrument you're talking about with with the the djembe, like um, like Famadou Konate is one of my teachers. Um, mm. He's he's from Guinea, and whenever I've been able to study with him, the thing about his his sound is and is the space that he leaves the the tone of his drum and the tone that he gets with his hands as well um and the phrasing um and so so i could recognize his playing as opposed to another teacher who maybe fills in the space a lot more or maybe um maybe plays a drum that's higher tuned right uh and then with drum set for me i maybe it's maybe it's easier to recognize some of the different people with there's vocabulary and then uh the uh tuning and and also maybe what they use i mean because with drum set it's really variable you could really change um you know you could have one drum or you could have two drums you could have 15 drums or 30 drums how long have you been drumming um i started when i was 13 and i'm 40 so um so 27 years yeah wow and was it always African drums, or I started with drum set, right? And Rock and roll in the basement. Yeah, like like a band band with my two um, two good friends, uh, guitar and bass, playing pretty cool. much cover songs and right. Yeah, and uh, and jam, you know, just jamming. I uh, I know this guy in Spain. His name's Chris Stewart, and uh, he in high school was in a band uh, with Peter Gabriel. Oh wow. And it was the the classic situation where they started to get a lot of gigs and they got attention from an agent and the agent, you know, basically went up after the show and said to Peter Gabriel, like, hey, dude, I think we could do something here, but you got to lose that drummer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a drummer's nightmare. (laughs) It's everyone's nightmare, you know? Yeah, and and I know this guy, and then by sheer coincidence, I happened to be sitting next to Peter Gabriel for 15 minutes at this thing and... Uh, and we started talking, and and people have, who listen to this podcast have heard this story a million times. But um, but I mentioned to Peter Gabriel like, hey, I, I know Chris Stewart, you know how? <laughs> and he was like, what? Chris Stewart? How's he doing? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's like a childhood friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I, I mean I don't know honestly if they stayed in touch or not. But um, yeah, Chris Stewart actually wrote a book that became a surprise bestseller called Driving Over Lemons. Ah. He uh, he moved. He sort of spent his 20s and 30s traveling around doing, you know, adventures. And he learned to be um, a sheep shearer. He was a really good sheep shearer. Wow. And apparently sheep shearers get flown all over the place, you know, at shearing time. (laughs) And, like, they'll fly you up to, you know, Iceland or Norway or whatever. And there's a lot of work. I I had no idea this world even existed. Hmm. And... um, then he and his wife bought a farm in the south of Spain in a very rural area called the, the Alpujarras. is a mountain range just south of, uh, of Granada. Beautiful, beautiful area. And uh, he wrote this book about you know, the experience of being an Englishman, buying a farm in Spain, and you know, the neighbors and the cultural stuff, and getting ripped off, and dealing with you know, the history of the place. And it's a beautiful book, and mm. it became this you know, big bestseller. And so he made some money in his 40s or 50s or whatever it was. 
Yeah, so Peter was happy to hear about uh, that. <laughs> so he's not playing music anymore? No, you know, probably, you know, for fun, but uh-huh. de- definitely, I think the professional thing never worked, you know. And it was a surprise because it just wasn't expected that they would take off like it did? Um, well, I don't know, honestly. I mean, it, it, we haven't talked about it a lot, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, like your band, you know, you're in high school, you're sort of hoping something happens, but... They're different abilities and, you know, different talent levels, but you all get together because you all love it and you're buddies anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have enough money to buy them um, and you play instruments that mesh and, you know, all that. But who knows? Because things are going to shake out if you as you rise in, you know, in, in uh, fame and fortune and all that things shake out and yeah. people get left behind. That's the way it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. There was a funny thing <laughs> last night. I saw Colin Hay. Do you know uh-huh. He was playing here in town, uh-huh. and he used to, to be the front man for Men at Work. He wrote all those songs. You know, They were at the top of the world for three years, and then it was over. Hmm. You know, that, The band broke up. I don't know what the story is, but three years, they won an Emmy, you know, platinum records, and then it's over. Huh. And he's, he was talking about how that you know, was, as an experience, a pretty interesting experience you know, to think. And he actually made a joke. He said... You know, at this time in my life, uh, you know, it's, it's like 91 or something where he's, uh, he's, he figured he was going to start working his way back to the top. And he's like, well, it's a very long term plan. He said, you know, I look at my life and I say, well, is it enough to be playing the Aladdin Theater in Portland on a Wednesday night? And everyone was cheering. <laughs> and he said, I decided, no, uh, it's not. <laughs> he said that last night. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. At least he's honest about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very honest. Anyway, so you've been playing for 27 years. What, what is it about the drums? That Why the drums? What uh, happened when you were 13? Yeah, um, so I had two experiences where I heard and saw the drums, felt the drums, and just was fascinated with them. I saw a kid playing at a the, like a play at my school when I was mm. probably in fourth, uh, probably like sixth grade. And uh, he he was doing things where I could hear what he was doing, but I didn't understand it. And the sounds just were really captivating for me. Um, so there was that. And then, then I saw a TV show probably within a few years of that where uh, there were, they were playing sticks with sticks probably on the streets in New York on just found objects, signs, everything. Oh, like uh, street performers? Yeah, but they were just, it was it was some sort of, they were a fo- show where they're following them around. I have no idea what it was. Yeah. But they were um, making music with, yeah. you know, just sticks and, you know, signs. I saw those guys, well, maybe they're different guys, but I remember seeing like uh, five or six uh, kids in New York when I lived in Manhattan playing mm-hmm. on the street, and they attracted massive crowds. Yeah. Because they were so good. And it was yeah, it was like tin cans and and milk jugs and whatever. Yeah, and it made, it really I re, I remember being very affected by that because it it really put that last nail in in the coffin of me thinking I'd ever be a musician uh-huh. because it was like, dude, if you were going to be a musician, you would be by now, uh-huh. right? It's not about buying the right guitar yeah. or getting the right teacher. It's you hear it or you don't, and if you do, you can play on anything. Yeah. What did you what did you play or what do you Oh, I fucked around. You know, I had guitar lessons, electric guitar lessons for, you know, a month before I quit that. Uh-huh. I took Spanish guitar for maybe one term in college. And uh but th- I mean my frustration is, you know, I've had a really rich life and v- almost no regrets. The only regret I probably have is that I never got over that hump where mm-hmm. um I could 
enjoy myself playing music uh, as yeah. opposed to struggling and figuring out where to put my finger or, you know, like I said in the class the other day, I, I felt like I, I was lost in a forest of five trees. Uh -huh. you know? Like, <laughs> this is really simple and I'm still getting lost, you mm. know. Um, but my best buddy growing up was a prodigy. You know, he played, I don't know how many instruments and won all these competitions for classical composition. And, you know, he played classical piano. He was writing sonatas in high school and winning all these, you know, he played Chopin etudes for fun and stuff. Mm. And then he played funk bass like Bootsy Collins <laughs> in the band. And, you know, he was, it was so cool to hang out with him. And, and I've always liked music, uh, and I feel like I really hear music deeply, uh -huh. but I can't make it. Uh, I think, I think, I think also hanging out with someone so talented could, I can see how that could be like, oh, I'm not as talented as that person. Or yeah, but I've never been c competitive. I don't need to be as talented as anyone else. I just, I'm just lazy. Uh, so it wasn't that I was intimidated by being competitive. It, it was just like, this is a pain in the ass, you know? And anything's a pain in the ass unless, unless you enjoy it from the get-go yeah. for some reason. Yeah. You know, and like my thing is writing and, and literature and that I love reading so much and then transitioning into writing was just an easier thing for me, I guess. I don't know huh. the way my brain works. But yeah, I mean, I go, I did a salsa dancing class with my wife a couple of weeks ago. Uh -huh. That's hell. <laughs> that is hell for me. Yeah. Like I've, I, if I have to think about where to put my feet, forget mm. about it. Yeah. Then I'm not dancing. I'm marching or something. It's mm -hmm. weird. Anyway, enough about me. We're not here to talk <laughs> well, about Well, you reminded me of one thing that I remember as a kid. I remember my dad saying one, one regret that he had was not playing an instrument. And, mm. my, mom, and my mom plays piano. Oh. Um, but he, so there was that. I think that stood out or stuck in my head. And then mm. also what you were saying about some people just, they just it's more natural for them. Um, I can relate to that where, where I haven't always felt like it was my natural um, like, you know, we have different strengths where maybe maybe I'd do something else, that, like draw or something like that. Maybe that's more natural, but maybe I have more passion for, for music and playing. Yeah. And so there, you you know, it, there there definitely were, were times where I, and still times where I'm, you know, frustrated with my playing and wanted to be at this other level where, yeah. you know, I feel like I'm here. But, you know, you just keep plugging away at it. And, you never get there, right? Yeah. I mean... I was talking to a friend the other day. This guy's made a lot of money. We we're having lunch, and uh, and he said something about um, getting rich. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Dude, you're already rich, right?" He makes like at, he, from investments. He's making twenty grand a month no, uh, for the rest of his life. Yeah, twenty grand a month net. He said, yeah. "Yeah," and he's like forty, right? And and he said, yeah, you know, if I do this and that and uh, it turns out right, you know, maybe yeah, I, could, I could get rich. I said, you are rich. Are you fucking kidding me? You never lift a finger. You get 20000 a month coming mm. in. You're rich. And he said, well, all right, I'm rich in your world. Mm. And I said, dude, this is the only world where you can be rich. Because if you leave this world, like where we're sitting here paying 20 bucks for lunch, yeah. then you're in worlds that keep changing the uh. more money you have. And once you do that, once you, your feet get off the ground then you're lost because you'll never be rich. You'll never, it'll never be enough. If yeah. it's not enough right now, it'll never be enough. Yeah. So be real careful about, yeah, I'm rich in this world, but you know, not the world I want to be in. And that's a whole comparison thing. Yeah. 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 I found that with, you know, I, sometimes you get to a point where you feel, I feel like I've climbed a plateau where I feel like oh, I'm feeling pretty like I've, I've progressed. 
and but there's always you know there's always someone else out there where you're like oh wow I have a long way to go which which is I mean I think it's good because there's it's just goes to show there's always more to learn. Yeah, as long as it's pleasurable. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's so easy for that to turn into you know God damn it I, I gotta I'm not good enough I want to you know a lot of people are trying to fill this hole that never gets filled. And yeah, you see that a lot in especially in American culture where it's all about excellence and you know all this bullshit about you know. You bust your ass. You work hard enough. You'll climb your way to the top. Like, oh, come on! There is no fucking top. Yeah, this is all a scam. Yeah, and and it kind of pushes competition, I think, too. Right yeah. to whose benefit? That that's the thing. That's this book I'm working on now. Everybody already knows about this, but I'm working this, on this book now that sort of calls into question the 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 legitimacy of progress mm-hmm. as even existing. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about drumming. We're uh, so you're you're drumming. You're 13. You're you get into your got the drum set. So you're 40 now. When you were 13, when was that? The 80s? Yeah. So I was born in 74. So so uh, late 80s. Yeah. So who who were you? Who did you dig in the late 80s? Oh yeah. So the you know they were the people who were on the drum magazine and the modern drummer. You know, oh. it was uh, it was Neil Peart and uh, and John Bonham. Oh okay. Who yeah. John Bonham? Was? John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. I'm not sure what year he died, but he. He may have already died at that point, but right. but I but I, you know I was hearing him, I was listening to him. Neil Parrott, I would love to get him on this podcast, and I've I've actually had an email from someone who I think knows him uh-huh. and was like, dude, you should talk to Neil Parrott. I was like, put me in touch, Cause, yeah, because I listened to Rush. My buddy, the great musician, turned me on to Rush. Uh-huh. I hated them. Oh, really? Well, the vo- Getty's voice. Oh, I yeah, mean, so Jesus high Christ, come on, man. <laughs> But, um, you know, but my friend, because he's a musician, he's like, check out his range, dude. Like, check out, you know, like how he hits this note here. And, and more than anything, check out that bass. I mean, mm. he's just going nuts up and down, up and down. And then, you know, all over the place. And, and Neil's drumming like 2112. I used to just get nutty listening to 2112 on an eight track player uh-huh. in my my what was it a 76 cutlass supreme dude (laughs) (laughs) i was set yeah 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 so neil parrot yeah and he interesting dude too yeah the whole ayn rand thing is a little unfortunate i'm not familiar with that but i know and i know he's traveled in west africa on a motorcycle and and all across canada Uh and i think his like his wife and daughter died in a car accident like a terrible but like a really deep guy a really smart curious thinking thinking guy yeah yeah so neil if you're out there <laughs> drop me a line buddy yeah I'd, I'd like to meet i'd like to meet neil Pert as, as well yeah yeah so so uh okay so you were playing led zepp and and uh rush yeah i mean i wasn't even necessarily playing that music i was listening to it and playing you know all kinds of different pop songs right. tom petty you know we just play whatever we felt like and, yeah um and yeah so did that for a year or so and uh a, fr- a friend of mine who played bass asked me to be in his band, and I said, no, I'm in this band, you know. And then, then my other friend ended up playing with him, and my band fell apart. Oh. So, so there was a few years where, where I was just, you know, practicing. But I always, I always loved practicing. Like, I really liked my first teacher mm. and just enjoyed practicing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the difference between you and me right there. <laughs> and whether you enjoy practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So then, how did how did it move into African and and all that? Yeah. So, uh, so in college, I 
I decided I wanted to be in a band, and soon after found myself in a band with some friends. Uh, what were you studying in college? Uh, I was a psychology major, and then I switched to visual art. Uh, yeah. And I ended up graduating with a visual art. Are you from degree. Oregon originally? No, I grew up in North Carolina. Ah. My family's from Boston, but when I was pretty young, we moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and right. I went to school there. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was in a band, like a jam band. You know, we'd have a lot of improvisation. We'd mm. play some cover songs, some Grateful Dead tunes, things like that. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, I mean, I, I sort of like know, I know people, I, uh, uh, what's his name? The, who's the percussionist? Uh, Mickey Hart. Mickey Hart's nephew is a good friend of mine. Oh, okay. Right? And I, uh, another friend of mine was like the in-house psychologist to, great, to oh, okay. the Grateful Dead. He hypnotized Mickey Hart and the other percussionist so they could play together, you know, subconsciously. Oh, and, yeah. It's Stanley Krippner. He's been on this podcast oh, several okay. times. Um, Anyway, so I've got these like really deep connections to the Grateful Dead, and I took a lot of acid. Uh, <laughs> but I, I it's, it's just bad music. You never got into it. I, it just sounds like sloppy, bad music to yeah. me. I, I never got into it. No. I, I got into it, and yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's so much music. I mean, they they made so much music that you probably could find something that you liked, but. Yeah, I, I, I've talked. Yeah. To, I've talked to musician friends who, who you know, they feel that way. And <laughs> well, objectively, as a musician, is it good music? T- to me, I think there's some great songwriting. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not always great musicianship, but they're. I think they're they're, they're stretching out. They're trying things. Uh, yeah. um, you know, I don't really listen to them regularly now, but but I I still there's songs that give me a feeling like I like I it feels good to listen to and maybe it's because I yeah. grew, you know when I was younger I listened to them and right. and liked them then um yeah and it's true like you know there can be it's like in writing there can be a book where the idea is so strong it doesn't matter that it's poorly written uh-huh. you know and music as well there can just be a it's such a great song that well, okay, it's not a great musician, or man, maybe the timing's off, or whatever. Or, mm. You know, he's nodding off because of the heroin, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I also where I went to college, people were really into the Grateful Dead, and because they were competitive about who was cooler, mm. a lot of them had these really lousy uh, bootlegs. Oh yeah. So you'd be getting stoned in your friend's room and listening to some horribly recorded bootleg from you know oh this was cincinnati in 78 man you know like, yeah yeah well i think that the, especially with the live shows like if you listen more to the produced albums you might have a different feeling about it just as far as you know the live show there would be lots of flubs and mistakes yeah but i think part of what part of what made them great was that they could do that i mean it's so there's something really liberating about being able to make mistakes in front of people and not care. Yeah, well, the the the, the uh, transformative power of not giving a fuck is very uh, underrated. And in fact, that's I, I, you know, to the extent that this podcast has any appeal, I think that's part of it. Uh-huh. That I don't edit it, and you know, like you and I were talking before the mics went on. If you know, if you want me to edit something, I will, but I rarely do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think uh, in a world where everything's so packaged and produced, the raw quality of like just two people talking and turn on the mics, there's something cool about that. Even though you know, there's I drone on about things too much, or you know, whatever there are problems with it. But yeah, in in the end, I think it's it's good to have raw connection. Definitely. Yeah. 
So, uh, okay, wait, I, I derailed you. By the way, this is called Tangentially Speaking. Yes. You're getting a sense for a while, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just wanted to like sort of get your trajectory before I start asking you harebrained questions. Sure. So you're, you're in college and... So, you, okay, so you're asking how I got into the into African the drumming. the African drumming, so, yeah. So in this band, we at times had two, two percussionists and a drum set, and I was playing drum set. Hmm. And... Uh, so the two percussionists were get, starting to get into it. You know, it was it was it was a type of band where we were all learning together. It was it was a beautiful beautiful experience because we were we were all friends and there was just there was a lot of energy and uh, and you know pretty much right when we got together we started doing some gigs and uh, and to just be playing and seeing people dancing. There's something about that which gives you energy. That, yeah. um, and so there were two percussionists in the group and. I went with one of them to out to Greensboro, which is a city about 30 minutes from Winston, uh, and there was a class, drum class slash more like a drum circle, and there was an African drummer who I think is from Guinea, but I, I'm not sure, um, but he was sort of facilitating it, but not really instructing. It was more like people were playing and he was playing, mm-hmm. but I remember there were the bass drums, the dunus, these drums that I brought, um, and I remember thinking, I want to do that. You know, I want to play these drums. They, they were drums that were played with, with sticks, um, where you have a bell on top. Typically, your left hand's playing on the bell, and then your right hand's playing on the drum. And I think something appealed to me about that the left hand playing the, the main pattern, the bell pattern, which is a little bit more active than what the stick part is. Because I'm right-handed, I think I, I thought, oh, this would be a really good way of kind of a different perspective and strengthening my left. Right. Um, so anyway, so I went to this class and I didn't, I didn't, didn't really learn much, but uh, but that was my first taste taste of of the music. And uh, and then I and then I went to a performance where it was people that had you know mostly Africans that had been playing the music. And so then I heard what it what it sounds like, and that was probably the first time that I'd really heard heard you know that this the music is is not it's not random it's really organized <laughs> yeah the yeah. opposite of the grateful dead yeah <laughs> it's tight yeah. yeah 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 and you know but and then, but then there's a lot of improvisation in it too yeah so you said something about being in the band and being really good friends and the, the good feeling and then like having people dancing and creating this vibe and all that you know maybe i'm projecting okay cuz i do have this romantic sense of how great it would be because you know, I and, and I get a lot of really wonderful feedback, audience feedback, but it's like five years after I finished writing a book, you mm. know, so I can hardly remember writing the damn thing that they're experiencing now. It's mm. very dislocated. Whereas you are in the act of creating that music, watching people enjoy it right now. Yeah. And I guess what I what I wanted to ask you is, like, when you're in a band like that. To me, I imagine that's a form of love, like a really deep love, because you're it's not sexual, but you're 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 creating this thing together that's yeah. really beautiful and feels good and is making other people feel good. It just I imagine and tell me, you know, break my spirit if you must. But I imagine that's such a, a wonderful place to be psychologically. Yeah, it was. And it was it was very it felt very creative and uh we, yeah, we had we had a lot of fun. You know, there. I think it is easy to to romanticize it, and but but 
you know, there's always going to be little little riffs and little ego plays yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You no matter no matter whenever you're, you know, yeah. dealing with more than one per- person, I feel like that's yeah, that's always going to come out. I, I, I like I say, I romanticize it, but I imagine that the making of the music would create um, a frequency on which you're connected with people. And I bet you know, I read about things like uh, the making of Rumors, the Fleetwood Mac record, where they like they were all they all hated each other. Oh yeah, and it was like they wouldn't talk to each other. They'd like tell the producer, tell her she needs to you know come in earlier. Like they wouldn't even speak. And yet they made this incredible fucking record, you yeah. know? Or even the Stones, you know, Keith and, and Mick, you know, they mm. talked through the lawyers for years. Mm. And, and still they're putting out Exile on Main Street. Like, yeah. how the fuck does that happen? Yeah. It's weird. I don't know. It's a world I don't understand at all. Yeah, I think, I think ideally, ideally you do, you do you're, you're able to play with friends or people that you really like. And that's, right. that's I think, what, that's what I look for. Uh, but... In college, the cool thing about that group was we were all really different, and I think, mm. the, and so I think we, I think we complemented each other in different ways. So, so even though we we weren't great musicians, we um, we would play off of each other a lot, and so right. I think that really that was nice. Yeah. So when did you first go to Africa? So, so I moved to Portland in '98, and I um, I got a CD of a local African musician from Ghana. Uh, and I, I really liked it and started started taking some classes with him and then started playing for his dance classes and started meeting many people from Ghana and uh, decided I need to go here to experience the music, learn the music, and also just the people because mm. because I, I met so many really nice people and uh, and I, I wanted to experience it. So uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I... Uh, I I decided I was going to go and was telling people I was going and uh my my mom's college roommate was uh, she was driving an RV around the country in Alaska for about 2 or 3 years and she came out here and we had a nice time together had had dinner and I was telling her this this dream and she she had uh she told me she had frequent flyer tickets that she would give me and so No kidding. Yeah, so she she made it possible uh Penny Shar is her name. Uh, and uh, she, she's a she's a doctor in Portland, Portland, Maine. Um, actually, not Portland, Maine, but she's in Maine. But uh, so she made it possible. And, and she was cruising around in an RV for a couple of years. Just took yeah. a couple of years off. Yeah, she's she's really into cool lady. like naturopathic medicine. Even though she's an MD, she's uh. she's a really interesting person. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she made it possible, which was was really was really a life changing experience. Uh, so so I was able to go to. Ghana after I think like six or seven flights to get there and I spent a few months there had some contacts but really didn't have a plan and traveled around Ghana for a little under two months mm. studying and living with with different master musicians who I'd heard of and um and that was they were welcoming it wasn't a problem yeah extremely welcoming uh it was interesting I, I've never really experienced the feeling before that of of feeling like, well, this must be what a celebrity feels like, but maybe all the good ways where I'd walk down the street, hey, hey, you know, people just come up to me all the time and want to talk. People were asking me, you know, what do you think of George Bush? (laughs) But people, people there were like, oh, I love, you know, I love America. I want to come to America. Um, Really friendly and, uh, and just, yeah, I had a great experience. I mean, there, there were, there were times where it was difficult, but, um, 
but I, I feel like I learned so much and got so much from being there. Yeah. And how old were you then? I, I was 30. 30. Yeah, okay. that was in, in 90, I'm sorry, 2005. It's an interesting way to turn 30. Yeah, I, I was just over 30. So. Yeah, but around yeah. that time, people's lives often change radically at mm. around 30. You yeah. Know? I mean, in the horoscope, they say it's uh, Saturn returning or something. Mm. But uh, not that I'm a big believer in that. But yeah, I mean, 30, I think 30 is a pivotal moment. It's sort of like the definitive end of childhood, you know, mm-hmm. not not necessarily that you have to get serious, but it's sort of like, eh, what the hell am I doing anyway? You yeah, know? well, it felt like that for me as yeah. far as that time in my life. Uh, so, yeah, just seeing how people live there and and I, and I would always, I would always have conversations with people and there's, you know, they're talking about you know, how they want to come here. And I would always say, there's so much we can learn from you and really felt mm. like there, there could be a cultural exchange. Uh, yeah. Like I was living in a house with, uh, well, it was, it was, I was, there was the house, a courtyard, and then there was a separate structure. And I stayed in a room there uh, in a town co- called Crocrobite, which is not too far, like probably an hour outside of Accra, the capital. It's on the coast. And, uh, and, one day I went with my friend Odamete to, to get fish. Uh, and we walked seriously, probably 10 miles one way to get fish. We walked to another village. <laughs> He's like, Hey, we're going to go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing to, to, to experience it that way because, yeah. because that's what other people were doing. They yeah. were walking and, and so we get this. And we wonder why they're they're all fit, you know? Yeah, like, seriously. Yeah. And, and it was this fishing village where there was, uh, you know, there were sharks on the beach, huge sharks, and they were hacking them up and, and putting them in bags. People were buying them right there. And we bought some fish and walked back, uh, you know, back to the, to the house I was staying at. And they would cook outside in the courtyard. And the thing, one of the things that really struck me was how nothing was wasted. Mm. The water bottles that I would use. You know, I was really careful about the water I drink. I would always give them yeah. to, the, to the, the people who lived at the house because they would use them to store oils and... Mm. Um, but so, but so they cooked this fish, and I remember the bones were thrown on the ground in the courtyard, and the seeds from the tomatoes were thrown on the ground, and I remember the cat was gnawing on the bones, and I remember the chickens were pecking up the seeds. And it just, it just, it just struck me how it was very symbiotic sort of relationship and not really wasted. Yeah. Things weren't really wasted. Yeah, definitely. And did you, was that your first trip? Out of America, the first world. No, no, I'd, I'd been. My first trip was to Belize when I was, I think, seventeen. My, uh, my mom took my brother and myself to Belize. Uh, nice. Yeah, did you do some diving. We snorkeling. did some snorkeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, and then I'd been to I'd been to Costa Rica, um, and I'd been to um, some other countries. But but yeah, that was it was different. Where I was really spending more time in in Ghana, and uh, yeah. and I went to different regions, which were really different. Uh, and the instruments were really different from region to region as well. But within Ghana. Yeah. 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 And Ghana is about the size of Oregon. And, and I've heard the, I think, I don't know the exact number, but there's, there's about 63 languages spoken right. within Ghana. Crazy. Yeah. And, and did you get really sick? You were careful with the water. I, I did not get really sick except for one, like 24 hours. Uh, yeah. I, I got off a bus and, <laughs> and I was in um, Kumasi, uh, which is kind of, kind of a capital of the central part of Ghana. And I didn't really get to experience it because I pretty much went straight to a hotel and slept for 24 hours. Good for you, man. Yeah. I mean, if that's as bad as it got 
Yeah, I feel I feel fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good because I I always I mean I spent a lot of my twenties and thirties in you know so called third world countries, not to be hierarchical or anything because mm. they were my favorite places to be. But, oh yeah. But I always sort of you know assumed I was going to spend at least three or four days. Wherever I was, I would just stay there and, you know, deal with it, get be sick. And then it would then all the intestinal stuff would sort itself out and then I'd be fine. But, man, I, I remember getting off a bus in Pushkar, not Pushkar, um, in uh, this was in Mexico, Palenque. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, man, I was a mess. I spent several days in bed puking and shitting in the same plastic bag yeah that sounds like my 24 hours except for, <laughs> except for i couldn't puke but it was it was it was miserable <laughs> but that but the next day when i found uh, some a good egg sandwich on the street that was pretty amazing egg wow that's risky man <laughs> yeah it was on like it was like on bread but but it was it was it tasted great i was i was ready so. yeah yeah it's a beautiful moment when you're ready to eat something again after one of those so uh okay so that was your first trip so you're 30 couple months in ghana Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. What an experience. Definitely. Really nice people. I've, I've, my wife's African. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. She, she talks about growing up in Mozambique and, you know, how much they loved America, America this, America that. And it's heartbreaking for her to be here, uh, you know, and see the reality. And, and not just the reality of, you know, what America really is, but what it is now hmm. compared to then, you know, yeah. the, the racism and the torture and the, just the shameless bullshit that's going on here. It's, it's really uh, sad for somebody who grew up seeing America as this, you know, promise of what, what the world could be yeah. if we were all clever and honest and hardworking, you know. I feel like that's what a lot of the people I met in Ghana saw in America. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's tough to be in that position that you and I have both been in of not wanting to dash someone's dreams, but also... Hey, you know, there's a lot about where you are that's pretty wonderful, which is why I'm here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough message to give somebody without coming across as a, you know, a dick in one way or another. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so you came back, and what, how, how was your life different then? The first thing I noticed when I came back were, was the sounds are different here. Sounds? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, you he, I, I started noticing the, the hums and the you know, the planes and the, and the lawnmowers and the machine. Yeah. Non-organic sounds. Yeah. Instead of yeah. the, you know, the, the roosters and the bugs yeah. and the birds and that, you know what, I, that's something I've keyed into as well, but I've, I've thought of it more in terms of smells, Ah, you know, that people talk about how India really stinks and, you know, whatever. I'm sure Ghana is the same. Probably there's shit in the yeah. street and, you yeah, know, there's, there's sewers in the side. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's true. I mean, there's no doubt about it. A, you know, an open pit toilet definitely stinks. Uh, but you come back, it's a different kind of stink because it's all organic. It's all cow shit, human shit. But then there's also tea and spices and mm. firewood smoke and, you know, all these. They're all living smells. And then you come back to, the, to Europe or the U.S. and it's chemical smells hmm. it's it's exhaust from oh, engines yeah. and stuff so it's the same thing you're saying in terms of sound yeah. it's machine oriented stuff versus it's all noise yeah uh, you know potentially but one is made by a living thing and one is made by a machine and since we're living things i think we resonate more with the organic yeah or, yeah. yeah so i, I found 
even though I'd be woken up really early when I, you know, I probably got up at six every morning, which is not when I get up yeah. here. The it's yeah, the sounds just kind of yeah. got to me more when I got back. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's more of, intrusive when it's a fucking machine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love waking up in a jungle or, or even, I mean, I was in Mexico recently sleeping out in the jungle on these platforms under a mosquito net and mm. the shit you hear out there in the middle of the night is yeah. amazing. I recorded some sounds when I was over there. Oh, jungle yeah, sounds? Yeah, yeah, there was some, this house I was telling you about, there were there were some, I think there were bugs, but sounds I'd never heard before. And I need to go back and right. go through those recordings and find those sounds. So is there, I, I mean... There is definitely music in nature in terms of percussion, like woodpeckers and oh, stuff yeah. and all that. And in Africa, I mean, is that the origin? You know, nobody knows. Nobody can really say. But it seems like when you listen to these jungle sounds at night that there, there's interplay of rhythms and sounds because things are, you know, especially like frogs, you know, they're on a rhythm for sure, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a teacher who... I know there's at least one song that he says he created from from I believe it was bird songs that he heard. Mm. And and I had an experience in college where I was walking uh, walking my neighborhood. I was I was really stoned, and in North Carolina there's there's some beautiful bird songs, and I heard these songs, and uh, and it just it just hit me, and all of a sudden I was like, this is it. I'm 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 gonna die now. I've heard this, <laughs> but, but it was an it was an amazing experience to 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 hear the interconnectedness of the songs and yeah. and hear how they are interacting and how beautiful it was. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's a nice moment when you hear the music. This this sounds so cheesy and cliche, like the music. <laughs> I hear the music of nature. It's like, but but yeah, but if you hear true. if you do hear it, I mean, if you hear something beautiful, it is beautiful. So. Yeah, there is that. That's for sure. So now, now getting into the whole spirit of all this, there's a book called um, Shadow Dancing in the USA by Michael Ventura. I read this book years ago. It's a, it's a lovely book. And in that book, is a, there's an essay called Hear That Long Snake Moan. Uh-huh. And it's about um, tracing the origins of blues and rock and roll, you know, like Chicago, from Chicago going back in time down the Mississippi River, New Orleans, wow. the slave trade into the West Indies, back to West Africa. And he sort of. You said going back in time. Yeah, to, going yeah. back because it yeah. starts in West Africa and comes and then goes up yeah. the river and all that, right? But it's really interesting. And there, I, I learned some amazing um, things there. Like, for example, that um, 80,000 Irish women and children were sold in the same slave markets. As the as the African slaves, in primarily in Jamaica, huh. which is why Jamaicans speak with a, a brogue. Hmm. You, you listen to Jamaicans; they don't sound like Cubans or Dominicans or you know whatever. There's this uh, Irish brogue, hmm. and um, there are elements of pagan Irish religion in voodoo. Wow! So there's all this interesting mixture going on. And um, I don't remember why I started talking about this. Well, but the, it, maybe the, the spiritual the spirit, aspect. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the drumming. Oh, I remember. The point was he said that rock and roll, you know, when, or, or the first time white people. No, it wasn't rock and roll. It was jazz. The first time white people were dancing to this black music, right? It's like 20s, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that white people had ever danced without choreography. Ever. Right, like all mm. white dances, all European dances, it's all like do this with your left foot, then do you do that, and then uh. you spin around, you know, a waltz or a whatever it is. 
And whereas African dance is, you know, generally without, you know, there are set dances, but a lot of it's just you're possessed by a spirit mm. because the African, you know, the drums are connecting you to the spirit world and there's the possession and all that. And then he went even further where he, he I think he quoted somebody saying that their idea was that the reason that uh, American, Native American music is so simple. You know, you think about, like, you know, Hopi, like, boom, 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 boom. Hey, you know, it's like, uh, as opposed to African music, which is all, it's, you know. It's, 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 it's like monorhythmic as opposed to polyrhythmic. Right. Yeah. So the reason for that, according to these ethno-anthropologists uh, or, or ethnobotanists, is that there are very few hallucinogenic plants in Africa. Huh. Whereas there are many of them in the Americas. So in the Americas, when people wanted to alter consciousness, they would eat some mushrooms or peyote or ayahuasca or whatever. Whereas in Africa, there's nothing there. So they use the music to alter consciousness. Wow. And it, that you know, fulfills the same function as the hallucinogens did in the New World. That's really interesting. I, I'd never heard that, but that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, there you go. So, so uh, do you feel, I don't know if you're religious or spiritual, do you have any sort of spiritual connection with the drumming, or is it just sort of a secular? I, I would say it's more secular for the most part. Uh, I've had times in classes where people have told me they've heard voices. They've heard singing when we're we're just drumming uh and i've heard i've heard some things like that but uh but yeah it's i'd say it's it's more secular for me mm. yeah. did you want to play something well yeah i, I would i would like to um and at some point i think uh maybe maybe what i play now could go at the beginning just because i didn't like what i played at the beginning oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> um so one thing i was thinking i could do just to 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 just demonstrate polyrhythm or multiple rhythms is I could play um, three different parts and then uh, and then I'll play them all together traditionally there would be three different people playing each one of those parts so so you have one person on the really big low drum and then you have another person on the middle drum and then another person on the really high drum and so you could have you could have five six seven eight different parts all happening simultaneously and it creates melody but I'm just going to attempt to demonstrate some parts together well separately first and then together just um as one person playing it which would be also called ballet ballet style which is uh which is like a style of music that was created for performance or show uh taking taking different cultures and ethnicities taking their music and then presenting them um so anyway so i'm going to attempt to do this with a rhythm called jagbe um so I'll start with this high drum called the kinkini. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the signal with, with my mouth. It sounds like That's the signal I'll use. So that's what the high drum, the kinkini, plays. Then the middle drum, the songban, goes like this. This is for the rhythm jog bay. Then the dunaba, the low drum, 
And I'm playing on the edge of the drum as opposed to a bell. But um, so then I'm gonna I'm gonna put these all together. I'm gonna raise my stool a little bit. So those are those are the parts put together as one person playing the parts. Um, yeah. Thank you. So uh, thank you for that. Have you? Although wait, I'm going to put that at the beginning. Yeah, I think I think it's, it's hopefully that's better than what I played originally. <laughs> <laughs> I liked what you played originally. Uh, well, I mean, maybe if if you do whatever you what do you what you feel. <laughs> All yeah. right. Um, uh, have you ever broken a drum? No. Is there... Well, yes, I have, I've had drums break, but I've never actually broken a like drum. Like while playing it, yeah, the skin cracks I've seen that happen, but I've been in the room when a, when a djembe's popped, and it's, it's a loud sound. It's like a really? firecracker, yeah. And is there any sort of like, does, is that bad luck, or does it mean a spirit jumped into the room or something? I, I don't know. I've never, I've never heard anything about that. It happens. I mean, the yeah. drums, you know, a, a drum head is made out of animal skin, and... You know, it could take weather, could do it, or just it could get old and it could break. Right. So, so it's pretty common at some point right. for the gym base. These, you know, these are typically thin goat skin. You're not thin, but they're goat skins, which are not super thick. Right. Um, and so they they do break. Yeah. 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 I just imagine like you know that would be one of those things where like oh, oh the drum oh that's you know because <laughs> uh, I mean I don't know in Ghana but I, in Mozambique somebody told me that drums are considered to be living things. Oh. And, you know, like you don't sell a drum to uh, someone you don't like, or, uh, you yeah. know, like a drum you've been playing on. You know, there's it's like important who you pass your drums to and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's different. Yeah, it's di- probably different for different cultures as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing, just about what you'd asked earlier about getting into African drumming, um, I got my first djembe in New Orleans, and um, so anyway, that that was, uh, yeah, I. Uh, when I was in college, anyway, that's going back. Why New Orleans? You just happened to be there, or did you want to buy a drum in New Orleans? My my brother lived there, and for some, I used to visit him a lot in college. And for some reason, I had the the idea that that I I could get a drum there, and I I liked the idea of having a drum that was portable and not you know yeah. the drum set. I mean, the drum set's portable, but it's all these pieces. Yeah, something that's all in one, you know, and uh, and so I went to this tourist market and. Um, in the French Quarter near Cafe du Monde, there was um, there was a like tourist African shop, and there was all these little djembe's. Uh, and then underneath all the little djembe's was this big, beautiful djembe. And I said, I want that djembe. And they, uh, the the woman I was talking with, uh, she she was like, Oh, that one's not for sale. And so anyway, there was a bunch of negotiation, and I finally got that drum. And that's oh, so that's really? so that was that's backtracking, but that's how I. You know, I got my first drum, and it was years later until I started really learning about 
the way that drum was was played by oh really yeah so you just wanted to have it you were like someday i'm going to use this well i would use it i just i just had no idea what i was doing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i knew that if you hit it in the center you get this low sound and you hit it closer to the edge you get a higher sound and right so right yeah Yeah. it's more than i know (laughs) that's about what i know at this point yeah so, um, okay, but you've been back to Ghana several times now. So. No, no, so I've only been to Ghana once. I, oh, I, I went oh, okay. to Guinea. Guinea, um, right. Yeah. So yeah. why Guinea? Why, why'd you change? So, so in Ghana, the, the djembe is not a traditional in- instrument there. They have many different drums, uh-huh. but, and they do make djembe's there just because it's a popular instrument. Right. But, um, but Guinea, uh, Guinea's one of the countries where the djembe's from, yeah. and and I started studying with teachers from Guinea and eventually right. traveled to Guinea to study with, um, with a teacher that I've been studied with a lot and then also studied with another teacher there while I was there. And you, you say you were studying with teachers from Guinea. Was that all in Portland? Yeah, it was, um, it was in Portland, not just in Portland, but yeah, I first, I first started studying with, um, with one of my teachers, Mamadi Keita, um, when he came to Portland. I think it was 2000. Um, I remember, I remember clearly being with him on September 11, 2001. He was here then. Um, and, and that's why I eventually went to, to Guinea, because he would bring students, and we'd mm. stay at his compound and, and study and have you know, classes every day. Two, I think it was two times a day. Um, so, yeah, so I traveled there specifically to study with him and also studied with another, um, another grandmaster Jimmy player from Guinea named Famadou Konate and I stay with him and I also traveled to Boise to study with him uh, and, and also with San Diego <laughs> Boise yeah. he was it's, funny. it's all these exotic names in Guinea <laughs> and also Boise yeah right great great African drumming tradition in Boise yeah, yeah. for sure well you know there's communities of people who, you know so they brought them there but but these those teachers aren't aren't traveling as much in you know, just because they're getting older, I think. I mean, uh-huh. I think they still do travel and, and play. I mean, sorry, and teach. Um, so, but yeah, so I went to, to Guinea to study, and um, is a totally different type of music than, than the Ghanaian music. Hmm. So I sort of shifted from, for, for my first three or four years playing African music, it was all Ghanaian music. And, um, you know, it's really different. Like, there's, the bell is usually held in your hand and played, as opposed to the bell being attached to the drum, and uh, you're you know you're just playing the bell in the Ghanaian music, whereas in the Guinean music, if you have bells, you'd play on the bell and on the side of the drum with a stick. Um, so yeah, so Guinea was a very different experience because they they speak French also, and and I know very little French. Ah, and Ghana is English. Yes. All right. Yeah. Wow. Good yeah. on you, man. You charged right in there. What was that? You charged into you know the French environment. That that would put me off. That would be a problem. Yeah, it, it was it was a different experience. Uh, but I mean, we were taking excellent. Care. I mean, they took great care of us. Right. Uh, but it, it's it's a you know it's very different feeling there than from Ghana. How did it feel different culturally? Uh, well, and some of it may have been the language barrier, and right. also some of it may be that we were. I felt like we were more. Um, insulated right. in the compound. Yeah, you're there. You're doing drumming every day. Yeah, you're not wandering around alone. Yeah. yeah. So, so like one of my my favorite experiences of that was the week before the the workshop began. I would go with this other teacher named Kumbana Konde, and he would pick me up on his moto on his little motorbike, 
and I'd get on the back of it, and we'd ride through town and uh, and go to his compound to study and play, and and just like people would yell us, "Hey, Kumbana!" You know, people would yell out to him, and just you know, we're on these dirt roads, and um, his his horn sounded like a goat. <laughs> it was yeah, it was it was great. I mean, just I love the experience of being out in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but but I had, I had a wonderful experience in Guinea. It just felt really different and. And I felt this, that people people were struggling to find food more than in Ghana. Uh, so, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, have you been to Asia? Uh, I've been to Taiwan. Uh, yeah, so, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've never studied like Indian drumming? At, no, I've, I mean I took lessons for Taiwan. a really short pe- period of time. I, I would lo- I'd love to go to that India. That must just be a mind blower. Yeah, I yeah. feel like I need another lifetime to get yeah. into that. Well, in India, you get it. Yeah, no, no problem. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so uh, what did I write here? I've got African. Oh, African musicians. Yeah. So do you listen to African music? Is that your like when you're just hanging out? Is yeah, I listen to a pretty eclectic range of music. But um, uh, Ali Farkaturi, are you sure, familiar with him? He's fantastic. And, yeah. and and I've heard some of his his son uh, View. I think uh, I don't know his son. I I know his music, and and I'll, I, I guess like many people, I was introduced to him by the Ray Cooter. Oh uh, yeah, uh, talking Timbuktu. Yeah, that's a really good record. Yeah, have, have you heard of a core play named Tumani Diabate? Yeah, I've got a bunch of his music. Uh, I, yeah. I've, I've never actually seen him live. Every time I've wanted to see him, I haven't been able to make it. Like he's when he's come to town, uh, but he's one of my favorite musicians. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Uh, there's there's also there's an album that I love that's uh, Jack DeJanet, jazz drummer who played with Miles Davis. Uh, he's playing with a core player. I don't remember the core player's name, but they the core player loops himself. Really, something Musa, I think. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's a beautiful album. It's just them doing duets, but the core player loops himself. Yeah, yeah, I'll look for yeah. that. That's uh, great. But I mean, I listen to a lot of jazz, and I listen to um, to. You know, some singers, and I, lo- I love the Beatles. And you know. yeah, can't beat the Beatles. No, some people don't like the Beatles. Though. They're just being dicks. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you don't like, I-, I can understand not liking early Beatles. You know, I want to hold your hand. Fuck off. I want to hold your hand. Right, but post acid Beatles, a day in the life. I mm. mean, no one can tell me that's not an incredible piece of music. You yeah. Know? Uh, conceptually, it, it just in every level. I mean, people are the guy goes into the dream state and wakes up, and then back into the dream. I mean, holy shit! Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people like sort of my thing with the Grateful Dead. I, th- there's there's an impulse that people have not to like something that's popular, mm-hmm. right? Which that's that's fine. That's cool. That's you know, uh, that's healthy on some level. Yeah. Um, but with the, when it comes to the Beatles. If you don't find some Beatles music that blows your mind, I, I don't think you're listening. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I feel that way. My sister is four years younger than me. There was some, you know, sibling rivalry, and and I, like I said, I always loved music. I always had lots of good music around, and and she, you know, as a normal sort of kid thing, she wanted to distinguish herself from me. So she um, became a connoisseur of the Beatles, but 
only the Beatles that I didn't listen to. Mm. So she has probably the world's greatest collection of really bad Beatles music. Uh. <laughs> and there's a lot of it, uh. you know, surprisingly. But yeah, she, she used to just play this music. It was just terrible. And of course, you recognize the voices, but like, wow. Uh, I haven't heard any of that stuff. Yeah, well, I haven't since, you know, since high school, <laughs> since I moved out. Yeah, it's funny. I used to hear people, people talk about Ringo Starr about not, like oh he's not he's not a great drummer but I, I think he's phenomenal I think he's one of my he's one of my favorite drummers really yeah because because the way he plays to the song and the way that he does creative interesting parts that complement the song right I, I can't think of anyone who could do it better for the really Beatles. yeah no, that's good to hear I mean I'm not qualified to make that sort of judgment but he always seemed like the coolest Beatle to oh me. interesting you know I like can the see one that. who just like was having fun and uh-huh. enjoying the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Colin Hay talked about him last oh, night. Oh, did he? What did he say about him? He was him? on tour with him. Ah. And uh, yeah, he, he recounted some funny stories, and you know, like he he uh, the story was uh, that he was in the dressing room waiting. To, I guess he opened for uh, Ringo, or maybe he played in the band with him. I don't I don't mm-hmm. know what the story was, but Ringo came in and he's like, uh, you know, hey. Uh, Hmm, that's a nice jacket. How come you never wear that jacket? Wear that jacket. And those pants would go well. (laughs) So Colin's like, you know, lots of nights I went out, I was dressed by Ringo. That's funny. Wow. (laughs) And 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 one time Ringo says to him, so Colin, tell me a story. Tell me a story. And Colin's like, oh, come on, you're Ringo, you know? How am I going to tell you a story? And he says, yeah, but I know all my stories, Mm. you know? Tell me one of your stories. Huh. But apparently he was a really a nice guy, really friendly. Oh, cool. he, he's one person that I would I would love to meet. That's, you know, I don't think it'll ever happen because he, he seems kind of unreachable, you know. Yeah. But uh, for for good reason. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, you know, if if I had to, if I was thinking of people, that would be one. There was I don't know. You ever see the BBC special about the Beatles? The like six hour thing at probably 20 years ago now it came out i've seen parts of it i think. I mean there are so many of them but but this one was so moving because they john was already dead and uh the other three were in three different places i think paul mccartney they interviewed him like on a boat on the thames or something and and george was in hawaii and ringo was wherever the hell ringo was i don't remember but there are three three different places and they were telling stories about, you know, coming to America the first time and the screaming and the Ed Sullivan show and all the whole thing. And they would cut between the three of them as if they were all reading from a, the same teleprompter. They were they, uh, the story. They remembered things so similarly. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it was really touching how it was almost it was so clear that they had experienced the same thing you mm-hmm. know not four different experiences and that's pretty uncommon i think it's, yeah. yeah the anti rushamon effect you know huh. in cinema they go but um but uh i remember the, one of the stories was when they went to visit elvis when they were like suddenly famous i've, I've heard that you remember that yeah. and elvis invites them up and there's some mansion in la i guess and they took they were in their limo and they went up and they went in and they're like holy shit this is elvis and and he had a piano and he's like hey let's all play something sing and they, they were holy shit and they left and they get in the car and it was like amazing but elvis was fucked up ah uh. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean, what I remember is that they looked at each other and they said that the idea was 
this is why we need to stay together. Because hmm. that's what happens when you go through this alone. Oh, wow. Right? You lose your shit. Because huh. there's nobody there to, to hold your feet to the ground, you know? Yeah. And, huh. and it was like, that's when they were like, wow, we're really lucky that we're going through this as mates, you know? Yeah. Rather than uh, trying to deal with this alone, because it's mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, that was really moving. Yeah. It was a moving thing. So, uh, okay, African musicians. Do you ever listen to uh, Orchestra Baobab? Yes, I've uh, seen them. I've seen them. You've at, seen them? At the Latin Theater, yeah. Uh, really? Yeah, I think oh, on my birthday or one year, I think I went and saw them. That must have been fantastic. Yeah. I, I would love to see them. They're interesting because what I've heard about them is that they're really influenced by Cuban music. Yeah. But they're from Senegal. A lot of their songs, they're singing in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I love them. I mean, I love covers and, you know, other versions of things. But, yeah, they're Senegal, Senegalese playing their favorite Cuban music, which is in turn uh, very much influenced by West African music. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic stuff, really. And they were like really, they released one cassette in the 70s or something Uh and never, it never hit. And then someone discovered it in Paris in the 90s and they reconstituted. I, I don't know how old they were when you saw them, but. Yeah, this was probably six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Papa Wemba, you know him, the Congolese? Mm, I heard the name. But uh, he's sort of like, you know, I've heard him described as the James Brown of Africa. Uh, he's got this amazing, really high voice, very beautiful. Hmm. Um, and he was in uh, France a lot. He would tour in France and uh, had a house there. He actually um, got in, rusted and went to prison for um, bringing people in because... Uh, see, I think this is a cultural misunderstanding. Bringing people in to Europe, oh, because he would bring like twenty people up in his band, and only seven would go back. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know. And then the next time he toured, he'd bring another twenty. And the thing is, it, in African societies, you're expected to share your good fortune. You yeah, everyone shares everything. And so, you know, if you're a really big musician and you're going up to Europe twice a year you're expected to you know take your cousins and your whatever and help them out yeah that reminds me of another thing about being in west africa and then coming back to the united states was the friends there would say oh don't go alone they'd always want to go with me so i'd always be with people and i I would want to be alone a lot of times but but when i came (laughs) home i was lonely i you know i missed having people to be around all the time yeah yeah. yeah, one of my favorite African expressions is the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Hey, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you for having me. It's I really fun. appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, before we sign off, though, uh, how do people find you if someone wants to to study uh, percussion with you in Portland or maybe online? How could they do that? Sure. Uh, soundandrhythm.com, www.soundandrhythm.com. And people often spell rhythm creatively, but <laughs> R-H-Y-T-H-M. Two H's. Yeah, I have trouble with rhythm. And I know the Y's there, but I never know where that H goes. Yeah, there's, there's a, yeah. Um, I was thinking about maybe changing the spelling or something, you know, to like something that's easier. But. Yeah, well, as long as it's rhythm, it's going to be different. So what do you think of the rhythm method? Are you... Uh, the rhythm method. <laughs> Do you know what that is? I've, Actually, I made a joke in class the other day, and I felt... What, no, so, what is the rhythm method? The rhythm method is the only birth control oh, uh, system oh, oh, yeah, approved yeah. by the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I what do I think? <laughs> <laughs> to, um, to me, it's just it, it's always sounded like when I first heard. I had no idea what it was when I, I was a kid. My parents were Catholic. I heard the rhythm jokes about the rhythm method. Yeah, and I, it it sounded sexy to me. Uh-huh. You know, like wow, the yeah, rhythm right. method like that. You know, that'll work. And then you find out that it's about not having babies. Uh-huh. I don't get it. I yeah. mean, come on. And does it work? No. the The idea is that you don't have sex when the woman is likely to be ovulating. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, but sperm lives for seventy two hours. So, like, okay, you know, you're three days early, and well, it's still could still could happen. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. That's uh-huh. why the Catholic Church approves it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want it to work. Yeah. Bastards. Anyway, okay, uh, sound and rhythm, R-H-Y-T-H-M yeah. <laughs> dot com. Yeah, and, and spelled out. And spelled out. Yeah, sound and, and rhythm. All right, yeah, thank, thank you, you. Clifford. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.